Welcome to Lost in the Wilderness. The priest and a rabbi explore Exodus. And Daniel, we're almost done exploring Exodus. We we have explored Exodus. It's uh, we are at chapter forty, which you know we never like like the chosen people wandering in the wilderness. We never really <laughs> thought we would get here. I think uh, most of our listeners never thought we'd get here either. So you know, there's that. You know what I miss? I miss the flesh pots of Egypt. <laughs> those, those first chapters were much more interesting than the ending of Exodus. Don't don't we all? Don't we all yeah. miss those Egyptian flesh pots? You know, they were oppressive, but at least there was more happening than just describing the tent of meeting over and over again. Now, so for our listeners, if we seem more uh, uh, exuberant than normal, they should know that, that there is, in fact, a mitzvah, a commandment. That when you finish studying something, particularly a, a big tractate or a book, uh, that you have to have a party to celebrate. So it's possible we, we are having a little party here. Well, it is uh, 10 a.m. on a Friday morning, but I have my bottle of champagne sitting here. Cork's still on. Um, so here's my question for you, Daniel. Do we wait to open these bottles of champagne until we finish this chapter, or do we do it at the beginning and then have a kind of drunk history reading of Exodus 40? I, You know, I'm inclined to go with the first rather than the second, but you tell I, me. I, well, I think uh, – I think really this is going to be more symbolic than anything. Because to tell you the truth, if I got drunk in champagne on 10 a.m. on a Friday morning, it would ruin the rest of my day. And I'm just not willing to go there. Well, I, uh, I'm imagining quite, quite the nap here. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I think I think we wait till the end. We bust these bad boys open. We have a sip, put them back in our, in our respective refrigerators. Uh, and then as we finish the bottle over the course of the next week, we just – we just wallow in our sense of accomplishment. There we go. Yeah. Uh, so sorry, listeners, you will not get to hear us uh, slurring the words acacia wood over and over again as we go through this final chapter. <laughs> Although we could pretend to, if that would amuse you. <laughs> I, I really, I think maybe we should do the whole book of Exodus again, except this time drink at the beginning of each session. Yeah. Yeah. Drunk Exodus. Drunk It'd Exodus. Thing. Uh, but, you know, to tell you the truth, I've just been high on life throughout this entire thing. So I doubt it would make much of a difference. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, because there aren't very many midrash for this, dear listeners, what, what we were thinking we would do is we would um, read the chapter and then spend a little time just talking about what Exodus has taught us, what we have learned through this long 41-week process of reading this book together. Um, so should we just hop right in? You know, we can, of course, interrupt each other and everything else, but um, we, we've fallen into this pattern of having interesting conversation with guests at the beginning and then getting to the long-winded descriptions of the tabernacle. But I say we reverse this now, in part because we don't have a guest. And uh, we read the, the long-winded descriptions, and then we get to the interesting conversation. How okay. does that sound, everyone? Let's do it. Okay. All right, so you want to start us out? Sure. Okay. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall set up the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. Place there the ark of the pact and screen off the ark with a curtain. Bring in the table and lay out its due setting. Bring in the lampstand and, night, and light its lamps. And place the gold altar of incense before the ark of the pact. Then put up the screen for the entrance of the tabernacle. So just to be clear. Can I interrupt? Yeah, please. Yeah. 
Well, I'm wondering, first day of the first month, what is the first month? What season are we in here? Or does it move because of a lunar so, calendar? So, yeah, so the lunar calendar moves as at least related to the uh, um, uh, solar calendar. But the Jewish calendar works a little different than the Muslim calendar, both of which are lunar. Uh, because the Jewish calendar has leap uh-huh. months uh, that we throw in there as opposed to the Muslim calendar, which does not. So you find that the Muslim calendar moves all around the Gregorian calendar, if that makes sense. Whereas the Jewish calendar roughly has about a month, give or take, uh, of uh, variation that you'll find in it. Ah, so this is why Easter sometimes falls exactly aligned with Passover and sometimes doesn't. Yes, but Passover is exactly. never in. Whereas Ramadan, the month of fasting for Muslims, uh, goes all over the calendar. So you can imagine it, it's a very different holiday in December than it is when you're fasting all day in August. Right, right. Because you have to wait for the sun to go down. So it's a tough period exactly. during the summer months when the days are longer. Okay, so so that's helpful. So f- why the first month of the first or f- first day of the first month? Is there any reason for that, really? So you know, one of the readings here is that simply this is what marks the beginning of the counting. Okay, and is we count from the completion of the Mishkan. Uh, okay, so basically, whenever you do this, is the first day of the first month. I uh, yeah, broadly. Broadly, you okay. can think of it that way. This is the uh, month of Nisan, would be the idea in, in sort of the Jewish months. It's usually sort of a March, April kind of month. Okay. And so let's get cosmic for a minute and say then that if this is where you begin the counting, then then liturgy is deeply affecting our sense of time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, the the event today that this month of Nisan is really remembered for is in the middle of the month. So at the uh, uh, full moon rather than the new moon uh, is Passover. Oh, is that why uh, the werewolf bar mitzvah happens then? Exactly. Do, do you know and love that that piece from 30 Rock as much as I do? I don't know the werewolf formats, oh, you should but I love up. 30 Rock. I don't know how I missed this. Yes, it's a Trey's video, and uh, part of the lyrics are, Werewolf bar mitzvah, spooky, scary, boy becomes a man, man becomes a wolf. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of my favorite things ever. I, I usually sing it to myself about twice a week when I'm feeling down. It cheers That's me incredible. right up. That's yeah. incredible, werewolf bar mitzvah. There we go. Okay, let's go on. Chapter six. Uh, we shall set the, or did you have something you wanted to add? No, I was just going to say, I was going to clarify that. So we are not actually seeing Moses do this yet. Now we're just hearing God tell Moses that it's time to do all these things. Is that right? Uh, it looks like it. Yeah. Yeah. So Moses, start time by setting up this altar. Get it going. Yeah. So there's actually a tradition that says that this process happened on the 25th of Kislev, which becomes the date of Hanukkah, and that uh, mm. they didn't want to dedicate it until the 1st of Nisan, so they just got everything ready and kept them sitting there for three months. Wow. That's commitment. Yeah, right I, I'm not sure what to make of that tradition, but yeah. Yeah. Is that oh because people want to elevate Hanukkah in competition with Christmas, or is there some other reason? No, I never thought of that. Um, 
you know, that is sort of the nature of Hanukkah. They, uh, it was not a significant holiday until the modern era. Yeah. And I, I feel a creeping, uh, Christian influence in that thought because of course, you know, Christmas is a feast of the incarnation, which cosmically restarts the narrative of the world. Uh, so if you want to link this restarting of the narrative of the world, the setting up the temple with Hanukkah, you would be essentially making the Christian theological. Oh, interesting. Interesting. So, um, I don't know. Okay. Yeah, I, I thought you were referring to the restarting of the commercial world in the shopping season. Uh, I believe that happens on the day after Thanksgiving. Okay. Okay. Because that's that's what Jews have done with Hanukkah. We we took all of the sort of grossest, overly commercialized parts of Christmas and we said, yes, that's the part that we're taking. Yeah, well and it's it's interesting because for really the first twelve centuries of Christianity, Christmas was not that big a deal either. It wasn't until the twelfth century reform and and part of it is kind of Saint Francis's part. Um, that the Feast of the Incarnation started to gain momentum and eventually overtook uh, Easter in terms of the importance in people's minds. Um, so it's, you know, I, I just think it's important to note that really for more than half of Christianity, Christmas too has not been that huge of a idea. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. I didn't know that. Um, know you know, it's it's the kind of wisdom I bring to this podcast and, and that you, dear listeners, will not get to partake of for a while when we finish <laughs> today. I know you feel sad about that. Okay, going on from verse 6. Uh, and you shall set the burnt offering altar before the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall set the laver between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall set water there, and you shall... That would get to be some very dusty water if they were waiting for three months. That's a good point. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. And you shall put up the court all around and set up the screen of the court gate. And you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it. And you shall consecrate it and all its furnishings that it be holy. And you shall anoint the burnt offering altar and all its furnishings. And you shall consecrate the altar that the altar be holy of holies. And you shall anoint the laver and its stand and consecrate it. You so bring Aaron. We've got yes. this idea of holiness here that, I mean, you know, it's so hard because we have so many associations with this word holy and angels and wings and, you know, all these sorts of things. But yeah. if we ignore everything we know about holiness and just read it in context here, it's pretty clear that what we're talking about is simply special status. Ah. Right? That this has been elevated to a certain status, um, ritual status. Right. Right. It has been moved out of the realm of the profane to the realm of the sacred, yeah. as Emil Durkheim would have. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Okay. Do you want to read uh, – re you read the part about Aaron since he's your uh, – You shall bring Aaron and his sons. Yeah, Grandpa Aaron is really how we like to think of him. Yeah. 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 Poppy Aaron. You shall bring old Pappy Aaron and his sons forward to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with the water. Put the sacral vestments on Aaron and anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest. Then bring his sons forward, put tunics on them, and anoint them as you have anointed their father that they may serve me as priests. This, their anointing, shall serve them for everlasting priesthood throughout the ages. This Moses did, just as the Lord commanded him, 
So he did. Hey, that's the most action we've gotten uh, in a long time here. It really is. It really is. Do you have a special tunic? No, but I feel like I should. I know. Uh, maybe it's in some trunk somewhere. I should talk to my parents yeah. what, what they did that with my tunic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, well, yes, I hope you find it because it feels like it'd be important. Uh, okay, and it happened in the first month in the second year on the first of the month the tabernacle was set up. And Moses set up the tabernacle and placed its sockets and put up its boards and fixed its crossbars and set up its posts. Wait a minute. What do they mean the second year? The second year after what? Yeah, that's a good question. Hmm. Rashi doesn't say anything about this. Yeah. Maybe. Does that mean they've been hanging out at Mount Sinai for two years? Maybe. Oh, I'm sure this is the second year of the wilderness. Really? Well, what do they do with the next 40 years or 38 years? So 38 years. years go by pretty quickly is the answer. I mean, all of a sudden we're – most of the drama is going to take place again like the entire book of Deuteronomy just days before. Okay. Okay. So I was thinking they, they wandered for 38 years. They come to Mount Sinai. They spend two years setting this all up. They're good to go. But what you're saying is they wander for two years. They come to Mount Sinai. They set all this up, and then they have 38 more years of wandering. This says, I'm looking at a commentary right now, it was on the first day of the second year, counting from the exodus from Egypt. So it's basically been a year. Okay. So really, we've got 39 years left. Well, in a way, this is good because... Uh, the, you know, they've taken everything they brought out of Egypt and put it into this making of this temple. So they're not, they don't have 38 years to squander it buying knickknacks from the nomads. <laughs> the, there's always a gift they, shop. <laughs> there's always a gift shop, even in the wilderness. So, you know, they're not buying their like Mount Sinai snow globes. Um, it's all gone into this. Uh, yes. Yes. Okay. Okay, well that that's that's helpful. It does make me feel bad for them that they're going to have thirty eight more years of wandering around, lugging the tent of meeting and the tabernacle with them. Yeah, I don't know why that. Makes you know, me it's feel interesting. Bad. We because we're not getting any end to our story here, right? We're we're finishing a book, well, but we're not finishing. There's no wrap up. No, and and you know. When we started today, I was thinking, well, maybe maybe we're wrong about where all this wandering leads to, right? Like I've always thought, okay, the exodus and, and the, the penultimate moment before the end of the exodus is Moses' speech before he dies. And then the ultimate moment is they cross the Jordan and they enter, enter the, the promised land. But, you know, the ending of Exodus seems to imply that actually this has not all been leading to the promised land. This has been leading to the construction yeah. of the altar. Like that is the thing we should be focused on. But then if we say, well, there are 38 more years of wandering, then no. The the construction of the altar is a, I don't know, I don't want to say tool, but something that helps them in the wandering and gets them to the promised land. So it's not the goal. It is a means to that goal? Uh-huh. Does that make sense? Uh-huh. You, you know, as we think back to the entirety of this cha- of this book, there's certainly the divide between what we might call the narrative content and the priestly content. 
but it strikes me that there's also a real divide between sort of the prophetic voice and the ritual voice. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, right. And we've spent so much time on ritual life in these last few uh, months. <laughs> months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we've kind of forgotten uh, that this whole story starts with a whole lot of prophetic voice speaking truth to power stomping around. Yeah. 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 Though we both come from uh, communities that believe pretty strongly, I think, in the power of ritual to hopefully inspire that prophetic voice. We both believe that these things are connected in really important ways. And, um, you know, in the Episcopal church, the kind of Catholic liturgics came back in during the 18th and 19th centuries with what was called the Tractarian or the Oxford movement. Um, and not just the Episcopal church and the whole Anglican communion. And it was these people who were trying to recover um, sacramental Catholic practices. And the interesting thing about them is that they were mostly serving in some of the poorest neighborhoods. They were serving people like dock workers. Those were their congregants. And to me, that's always part of the power of that has always been uh, that people need beauty. You know, if you look at like a Maslow hierarchy of needs, beauty is not on there, but it probably really should be because we'll do a lot in order to, to get chances to encounter the beautiful. Um, and, and liturgy is beautiful. Sacrament is beautiful. You know, this tabernacle, which we've heard being constructed is beautiful. Uh, and it makes sense to me that people wandering in a wilderness for 38 years without, with very little to their name, are prioritizing beauty. They're saying, we're going to take beauty with us. Yeah, that's a great thought. I never thought of that. I mean, imagine how this tabernacle stands out in the wilderness. Yeah. Uh, in a way that it might not in Las Vegas. Right, right. And I think it's, you know, it's really true of poor people today to bring the prophetic back in or, and poor people of every era. Like people get criticized a lot for, Oh, why, you know, why are you spending money on those shoes yeah. or manicure manicure? You know, wouldn't, wouldn't it be more sensible to spend money on something else? And the answer is that's not how human beings work, right? <laughs> we need to feel like we're in contact with the beautiful, however we define or describe it. So, Okay, anyway, long rant. Sorry about that, people. We said we would be going straight through this. I'm sure you're really <laughs> uh, I think we stopped at verse 19. Do you want to take it? He spread the tent over the tabernacle, placing the covering of the tent on top of it, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the pact and placed it on the ark, and he fixed the poles to the ark, placed the cover on top of the ark, and brought the ark inside the tabernacle. Then he put up the curtain for the screening and screened off the Ark of the Pact, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. He placed the table in the tent of meeting outside the curtain on the north side of the tabernacle. Upon it, he laid out the setting of bread before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He placed the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle, and he lit the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He placed the altar of gold in the tent of meeting before the curtain. On it, he burned the aromatic incense, as the Lord had commanded Moses. I'm just going to read that, as the Lord had commanded Moses, in Hebrew, because it is such a repetition here that there's clearly a, 
uh, sort of feel to it. Kasher Tziva Adonai et Moshe. So each of those, we're getting these sort of statements, and then it's Kasher Tziva Adonai et Moshe. Something, 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 something. Kasher Tziva Adonai et Moshe. Okay. Um, so that's like the the rhythmic backbeat to this whole passage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there is a rhythm there, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, then he put up the screen for the entrance of the tabernacle. As the entrance of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, he placed the altar of burnt offering. On it, he offered up the burnt offering and the meal offering. Kasher Tziva Adonai at Moshe. He placed the laver between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing. From it, Moses and Aaron and his sons would wash their hands and feet. They washed when they entered the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar. Kasher Tziva Adonai at Moshe. And he set up the enclosure around the tabernacle and the altar and put up the screen for the gate of the enclosure. When Moses had finished the work, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the presence of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So Moses, um, oh, go ahead. about that kind of repetition as the Lord commanded Moses or as the Lord charged Moses or you do it in Hebrew one more time. Kasher. Kasher Tziva Adonai et Moshe. Yeah. I, I, I kind of, I really like it actually because on a language level when reading this, it, it gives it um, a meditative feel. It's a little like an om or something. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it seems to cue us in that we're supposed to read this uh, and allow it to slowly bring us into an almost trance-like state. Yeah. yeah. You know, some of my favorite poems or eulogies or even political speeches have that quality to it, right? Where there is this one-line mantra that you keep coming back to. Exactly. So as you read this, listeners, just remember, you're not bored. You're just meditating. (laughs) Okay. Uh, To finish it up. And the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses could not come into the tent of meeting, for the cloud abode upon it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And when the cloud went up from over the tabernacle, the Israelites would journey onward in all their journeyings. And if the cloud did not go up, they would not journey onward until the day it went up. And uh, um, Actually, Daniel, you take the last line. For over the tabernacle, a cloud of the Lord rested by day, and fire would appear in it by night in the view of all of the house of Israel throughout their journeys. So and so ends it's, it's traditional, Exodus. actually, as you end to say, "Chazak, uh, chazak, v'nit chazek." Uh, strength, strength, we will be strengthened. Like uh, uh, we've done something uh, of significance in finishing this, and then we put it into the future tense, and there will be more. Okay, right, because it'll be coming back around again. <laughs> it'll be coming back around again, Torah, without a doubt. Uh, so it ends with the kind of theophany. So this cloud comes down and fills the tabernacle. And then that that cloud becomes kind of the Google Maps for what they should be doing, right? Like if the cloud is here, uh, don't journey. If the cloud disappears, journey. I, I like this. It's the Google Maps. Yeah. Yeah. The, the other one that I have totally stolen from you, and I give you credit every time I reference it, is that Midrash is rabbinic fan fiction. Yeah, man. Uh, it's kind of, it's, so prophecy comes back in at the end, right? Keep going. But this time it's, well, because 
God is now kind of prophesying directly to the people, like telling them what they should do by either the presence or the Mm. non-presence of this cloud. Um, So that we've, we've gone through chapter and chapter and chapter of just setting things up for this moment. And what it is, is kind of a divine switch that tells them. Now we know where to go. And that, you know, this to me is actually one of the interesting things that's sort of different from my childhood conception is that if you read the Torah, and particularly if you look at the commentaries after Exodus, the understanding is that basically the the 40 years in the wilderness are mostly spent in just a few locations where we stay for long periods of time before we move on. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, which makes sense because it's not that much ground to cover. So 40 years has always yeah. been deeply confusing. Yeah, okay. So they've spent... Uh, how long do you think they spent in Mount Sinai? Yeah. There may be no way to really know all this going on. The Sinai moment. Okay, well, so we've finished the text. Uh, do we want to pop the champagne now and then spend a few minutes talking about what we've learned? I think it's time process? to. Have a little, little, little time here. All right. Okay, so I've got Lunetta Prosecco, which I know is not actually champagne. Uh, what have uh, you I got better there? go get mine. Hold on one moment. Uh, okay, I figured I shouldn't let you prosecco alone, and that's what I'm going with here too. Yeah. Oh, okay. We're we're both proseccoing. Uh, all right. So, uh, who made your prosecco? We could do a little Cecilia Beretti. I, you know, one of my one of my favorites, and God knows we have prosecco at least once every few years. So I, I feel like I should. <laughs> Okay, taking the foil off and now taking off the little metal thing that for some reason is always on there. I suppose to keep the cork in place. Getting my handkerchief and moving far away from the computer. Oh, see, I am in my uh, destroyed basement right now, so I figure there's nothing that could happen with this cork that would make things any worse than it looks. What about the computer? You don't want to Point away champagne. from the computer. Good okay. reminder. Here we go. Here we go. There we go. I hope you heard it. Yay. Spilling champagne. There comes mine. All right. All right. Ah! Oh. Uh, what, what is, what, how do you say cheers? There's a, like a, a Yiddish term. L'chaim. L'chaim, of course. Yes. L'chaim to life. L'chaim. Oh, that's, that's very nice. Okay, champagne is poured. Let me taste it. I have just been drinking coffee, so I, I bet it will have coffee overtones. Mmm, delicious. Very tasty. Dry. Very nice. Very nice. Congratulations, Congratulations. Daniel. You know, all kidding aside, I, uh, I feel like we really accomplished something here. I do, I do too. Uh, listeners, I hope you also have champagne in, fan, uh, in hand, but not, not of your drive. Yes. Enough, yes. Uh, pull over for your champagne. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so 41 weeks, 40 chapters in the book of Exodus. What stands out to you, Daniel? Like what, it, it, going back, if you think back upon this project, what will you carry away? I'll never look at the book of Exodus in the same way. I mean, I, I don't think, you know, I've read Exodus dozens and dozens of times and – just the attention to detail and talking about each chapter for an hour was really transformative. Um, it was also, you know, to do this through someone else's eyes at the same time and someone else's faith tradition. 
Um, you know, it, it struck me just how many assumptions we read into the text that we assume are there, uh, only to discover yeah. that they're much less there than we thought. Yeah. I mean, going back, one of, one of the assumptions that I always had was that this book is about um, a kind of concrete God, like the God I imagine. And, and one of the things that really stood out to me was this idea that the, the gods of Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham might be different gods or conceived differently. And then that the God who's talking to Moses could be thought of in several different ways, right? God of mercy, God of judgment, that these aspects of God are really important. Um, And, and, uh, you know, are we, are we actually dealing with monotheism as we've come to conceive of it in this book? You know, I don't think so. I think, I don't think so. I think we get a little closer once we get into the book of Deuteronomy, but even there, I'm not sure we get true monotheism in the five books of Moses. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it's a God of Israel, but there are, there are, there's plenty of room for other gods. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I think by the time you get into sort of second Isaiah, you know, Isaiah chapter 40 and beyond, uh, yeah. you start getting some real honest to God monotheism. But as, uh, but we get to see it develop. I mean, I guess, you know, one thing about scripture, which I, I often find people misunderstand, is that it's not like the Book of Mormon or something. It's not a revelation which was given to one person, and therefore we can expect a certain amount of internal um, synchronicity and consistency. Uh, instead, both both the Hebrew Bible and the and the Christian Bible or the New Testament, the Christian edition to the Hebrew Bible. Uh, both contain lots of arguments and lots of development of theological thought over time. Yeah. Consistency was not a value for these ancients in a way that it is for us. Right. Right. But, you know, these canons are put together long after the fact. Uh, so the Christian canon is settled sometime, I believe in the fifth century. I could be getting that wrong. When is the Jewish canon settled? When is it decided that these are the books of the, so of the Jewish? Generally scholars believe that the very last book to be finished, uh, in the Bible is the book of Daniel. Uh, and I think the book of Daniel is finished in the mid second century BCE. Uh, and so really we're seeing the, the creation of the canon right around that same time. And in fact, the, interestingly, the Daniel is not considered the controversial ones. The two books that the rabbis debate about whether or not they will enter into the canon. Uh, want to have any guesses here what the two most controversial ones are? Uh, I mean, I would think Ecclesiastes yep, might totally. be problematic. Uh, and then I would think maybe the Song of Songs. Oh, well done. Ha <laughs> ha. <laughs> well done. Yeah, exactly. Those two. One for uh, 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 theological, philosophical reasons and one for, you know, erotica reasons. Yeah. Yeah. Although, uh, you know, I want to give a shout out to Ecclesiastes. I, I was when I first started OSU as chaplain, I, you know, I had gone to a school of 1600 and I had then been chaplain at the same school. And so I'd never been anywhere as big as OSU. So I decided to take some undergrad classes just to kind of experience what it was like for undergrads there. 
And I took one that was called the English Bible, which I thought was going to be about like the translation of the King James Bible, but just turned out to be a Bible as literature class, Um, which I still learned plenty from it. Um, But it was so interesting when we got to Ecclesiastes that students, many of whom were evangelicals, uh, were really questioning why it was there. You know, they were like, why is this in the Bible? It, It is totally against basically what we've been taught, which is, you know, God will give you anything you want. And if you're a good person, God will love you. And if you're a bad person, God won't. And, uh, you know, I raised my hand and said, well, it's, it's there because that kind of theology, which is found in Proverbs, essentially punishes poor people, right? It says, if you're poor or unhappy or the victim of misfortune, it must be because of something you did. And Ecclesiastes says very clearly, no, you know? <laughs> No, that is just vanity and the chasing after winds. Uh, it's my favorite book in the Bible. Oh, really? That's cool. Why? So what What about it do you love? I, it's just so honest to me. I mean, other than the last, what is it, two or three verses that are tacked on by some later editor who's uncomfortable with it. Yeah. Um, you know, I was also always the kid who, and I continue to be an adult, who I love like reading about how the sun is going to eventually explode and envelop the earth. You're an apocalyptic dude. Yeah. But I, I, you know, I also, the the image that is just one of the most spiritual images for me is, uh, the space probe going past Pluto. I think we've talked about it before because I love it so much, uh, and turning back towards earth and us just being a, a little speck of dust in the corner. Um, and I feel like that's Ecclesiastes. It doesn't pretend like we know what happens when we die. It doesn't pretend like this is all some uh, big game to figure out what happens next. It's, you know, it's honest about not knowing and how we're supposed to live with uncertainty and in uncertainty and never move past uncertainty. And, um, yeah. Do you know anything about, isn't it um, the teachings of somebody named Koalef or Kohelet? Yeah. Kohelet, the master. It's traditionally in Jewish uh, uh, custom ascribed to Solomon, but very clearly it it is much later. It has some influences from uh, Greek philosophy and some say Persian philosophy as well. Well, I would almost wonder if it had some influences from Buddhism, you know, because it has that kind of uh, reality as an illusion or what we think is real as an illusion feel to it. Yeah. So that's interesting. Anyway, that was a long diversion, dear listeners, um, from from what was a, a question about canon or just a reflection that scripture, including the book of Exodus, uh, should not be seen as like the, the exposition of a settled doctrine that is, in fact, a story of our wondering about ultimate things and that sometimes we disagree in our wondering. Yeah, and, you know... It also stands out to me, I have to say, how, having gone through this for 41 weeks now, how central this story is to the stories that we tell in the world today, and mm-hmm. yet how much of this story we just don't know, too, or, or most people don't know, or, or how much I didn't know, even though I'd read it dozens of times before this. Um, and yet, right, uh-huh. is there any story more core at some level to the Western experience than this exodus. Yeah. 
Well, I'm thinking, you know, part of what makes a core is, is a beginning, right? The flight from Egypt, the opposition to Pharaoh. And I'm trying to think, like, have, have we internalized the ending? Is, is the priesthood material core to us in terms of our story? What do you mean by that? Give me more on that. Well, I guess I'm, and I'm, I'm speaking out of turn and from ignorance, so huge caveat and apology at the beginning. But I'm thinking about how important the story is to the African American experience. You know, the the fleeing yes. from the oppressors. You know, the calling of certain areas of the South, Egypt. Um, you know, thinking of Harriet Tubman as Moses. You know, like this, the story gets read in terms of people who are both fighting against and escaping from oppression in the American experience. But um, yeah. where's, where's the altar set up in all of that? Um, it must be somewhere. I mean, I, I think it probably is. So I'm not, I'm not saying that it's, it's not, I'm just wondering why that's not part of the story that I know. Well, you know, I, I'm going to totally um, metaphorize what you just said there. Um, but to me, I think one of the ongoing and lingering lessons that I'm going to take with me here, uh, is the relationship between our stories that we tell that are there to try to transform us and the rich and the rituals that we have. Uh-huh. Uh, and that tension is already there, right? It's already in the book of Exodus. We have this divide between, the stories as they happened and the rituals that are designed to remind us of those stories. Uh, right. Because ultimately that's what it is. I mean, ultimately, right off the, the convening at the Mishkan at the tabernacle is so often framed as a reminder of our exodus from Egypt. Right. But the fact that it comes only two years in means that it is also part of that exodus. So it's like a reminder of the first part. Well, I guess the Exodus, the actual leaving from Egypt. Yes, it's a reminder of that. Wow, that's interesting. And then, then the reminder carries us through the wilderness. Yeah, and, and you know, it's also, it's there to let us know how quickly we forget the lessons that we learned. And that's, yeah. that to me is one of the themes here. And, um, you know, it's just reading a commentary on uh, a, a, a section in Deuteronomy where a contemporary Jewish uh, thinker remarks that uh, just as the United States didn't let Jews in during the Holocaust, we learned that lesson. And in the 1970s, we let the boat people in. And I was reading this and all I could think was, and we forgot that lesson that quickly. Right. Right, because, yeah, we're not learning that about Syrians, for instance. No, no, we've totally forgotten it again. We're back to where we were with the Holocaust. In fact, I mean, there's all these, um, I don't know if you've seen them float around your social media, but certainly they, they're shared widely in Jewish social media. These American posters and signs and advertisements from the 1920s and 30s uh, talking about the Jewish threat uh, and how all these immigrants from Germany would try to come here and change our country and our culture and so on and so forth. Huh. And it's like you could just substitute Syrian or Mexican or um, Muslim wow. or, I mean, it's, it's startling. 
What a what a position of weakness that's from. I mean, do people really think that it, that our culture is so fragile that it would be changed rather than it changing the people who come to it? You know, like like if I were, which I kind of am, you know, like a a deeply patriotic America American who believed that America as an ideal is important and will have an effect on the world. Wouldn't I think like somebody coming here will be changed by that ideal rather than thinking, Oh no, they're going to destroy that ideal. I don't know. Um, memory is so interesting to me. Like I have, I, I in fact, I was just thinking about it this morning and, and working on something about it. Um, a number of years ago, I read this book by Carl Sabah called Remembering Our Childhood, How Memory Betrays Us. And it was his, he's a journalist, and it was his kind of takedown of this recovered memory stuff, which got so big and, you know, like psychiatric circles in the 80s and led to the satanic panic and all these nursery workers being falsely imprisoned because children were recovering quote unquote memories of abuse, which has now been proven never to have happened. And they've been let out of jail after, you know, I don't know what that is now, like 30 years, but, but so ruinous, you know? So it was from this ruinous assumption that we have buried hidden memories, um, and, and that those can be brought out successfully in therapy. And Carl Sabah just, destroys this. He's like, that is not how memory works. Um, but, but he no. kind of goes pretty far into saying and quoting all these scientific, you know, studies that show that we really can't trust memory that much at all. You know? Um, so for years I've kind of wondered like, what, what is, what is the value in use of memory? You know, when do we use it well and when do we use it poorly and how much should we trust it and, and, and everything like that. And, and what we ask about individual memory, I think can also be asked. Mm. Collective memory, mm. Right. Yeah. You know, it's one of the sort of classical, uh, Jewish lines about why our tradition is true. Whereas other traditions are not true. Uh, is mm. that, uh, well, 600,000 people stood before, uh, or 600,000 men stood there for the Exodus. Uh, so it was a group revelation that has been passed down and therefore is considered to be more trustworthy as a source. Uh, and we find this, you know, for instance, throughout the Middle Ages, when you'd have these sort of uh, classic discourses between Christians and Jews, uh, this was one of the sort of reoccurring themes that we would find. Yeah, yeah. I, but, of course, I'm not sure I... I trust that as an idea. I mean, I think it would be better to... No, no, not even a little yeah, bit do I trust yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, but, you know, speaks to how we think of collective memory, too. Right, right. I mean, I think it would be better to, to not talk about memory, but about story, you know, to say some event happened and then we created a story out of it. And and that story has value. You know, it's, it has power. It leads us to live our lives in a certain way, which is moral and just. Um we don't need it to be a hundred percent factual memory. We can gain from the story so much that there's no reason to, to gild the lily by claiming, you know, that it is historical fact. I have a, uh, one of the great teachers in my life, a man named Yehuda Kurtzer is the president of the Shalom Hartman Institute in North America. Uh, he has a book called Shuva, S H U V A, the future of the Jewish past. Uh, mm. 
And what he really talks about is the difference between memory and history and how we make mistakes talking about the Jewish world. But I think maybe you could be talking about the religious world in general, that we make a mistake when we focus on history. History is what happened. Memory is about what we're supposed to do with it. Uh, And he, he talks about the Holocaust and how Jews remember the Holocaust that, uh, History is talking about the six million and gathering together to commemorate them. Uh, memory is sitting together at a table and telling the story in a way that changes us for our world today. Yeah, I love that. And and that brings us to one of the things I learned from this whole process. One of, one of the most interesting things you introduced to me is that, that uh, is a David Hartman article uh, Sinai or Auschwitz. Oh, it's an article that changed my life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just kind of thinking through that question of, of morality and action in the world that he poses is really powerful. Um, and, and another thing I learned from this and learned from you and also some of our guests, and let me check this out with you to see if I actually learned it correctly. But, I learned that there is actually a reticence in in talking about the Holocaust or giving it too much weight among kind of a younger generation yes. of liberal Jews. Yes. I did not know that before. <laughs> yeah. Um and and I think you've described why that is, but do you do you want to just give us a refresher? You know, for really understandable reasons, the focus and the energy of the Jewish world uh, after the Holocaust was surrounding the trauma, uh, and the very real trauma of it. And that trauma turned into, uh, the core sort of hook that Jewish identity was hung on in the United States. Uh, you know, one of, one of the themes we've talked about over and over again is how Jews fundamentally are not, uh, a people where faith is at the center of our identity. Faith and Judaism certainly are, are an important part of the Jewish people, uh, but they're, they're not the organizing principle for Jews. Uh, in fact, right when we look at studies of Jews in the United States, we look a lot more like people who self-describe as secular than we do as people who self-describe as Christian or Muslim. Uh, Hindus also, we look a lot like Hindus. Uh, when you look at American Hindus, uh, yeah. But what that meant was that there was really sort of an opening for what would American Jewish identity be about. And for a generation or two, American Jewish identity was really not about Judaism, but about, uh, or at least it's the critique, Holocaustism and Israelism. Uh, that these became the yeah. center of identity. And, and, you know, I would say for a younger generation of American Jews, what we have said collectively is that these aren't narratives that speak to our experience because, you know, the vast majority of American Jews, uh, first of all, grew up white or, or grew up being uh, sort of uh, benefiting from white privilege uh, and have not, by and large, experienced direct anti-Semitism uh, beyond an occasional moment here or there. So there's something in that for this ending of Exodus. Um in that we've been complaining about all this priestly material, 
and yet now I'm kind of seeing the genius of it, right? So the 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 chosen people in Egypt are enslaved, they're traumatized, there's a kind of holocaust going on in their lives there. They escape, um, but because Exodus ends with priestly material, it is essentially saying, don't stay lost in the story of your trauma in Egypt, uh-huh. right? Instead, here is here is the thing you should focus on. Here is a, the question you should try to be answering, which is how to worship and honor a living God correctly. We're immediately leveraging <laughs> that memory for a greater purpose, yeah. Yes. So if they were to ask, what are we about? You know, the answer that's given by Exodus is, you are about the tabernacle. That is what you are about. <laughs> uh, which is a, a brilliant answer in that it, it then mediates the trauma of the past and, and keeps it from becoming an excuse to do violence to others, although there is still plenty of violence yeah, to God others knows. to come. The book of Joshua. Uh, yeah, but it is also an answer that is not going to fit very comfortably into yes. secularism, right? <laughs> so there we go. Um, well, we we are about 10 minutes out, and we actually had a listener question, which I do want to give a little room to. Uh, so this comes from Jared, and he said, I've had a question about ancient Israel that's been needling me for years. I better ask it soon before you leave Exodus next week. He says, only the high priest is allowed to enter the Holy of Holies, and they're only allowed to enter it once a year. On top of this, they have a string tied to their legs so that they can be dragged out if they die. Okay, sounds like a notion. But there, but this is a room inside a tent. Critters enter it sometimes. If they die, do they just lie there and rot? What if the holy, what if the holy of holies gets a gnarly spider infestation? What about all the dust that builds up? Was there a secret altar guild who kept the Holy of Holies pretty? Somehow I imagine that when the priest briefly enters the space, he's not sent in with a bucket of mops and told to spend most of his time cleaning up. <laughs> Did he do an annual inventory to make sure that things are still functioning? I bet he didn't shout out, the tabernacle needs a leg replaced. Someone craft one fast before the sun goes down and my day is up. Maybe it's just happened. Maybe it just happened but wasn't written down. But I know that altar guilds like to keep good records. Have we found any of the inmost sanctuary of the ancient temple? <laughs> I, I believe Jared's question is a little ton-in-cheek, but I still like it a lot. Wow, I love it. I love it. Um, okay, I have a number of thoughts. So the first actually is outside of rabbinic literature, which is written down starting about 100 years after the destruction of the temple, but then goes through it uh, sort of, editorial process of about four or 500 years, uh, which is to say it's getting farther and farther away from anyone who ever experienced the temple. Yeah. Um, outside of rabbinic literature, we have almost no records. And part of that is because uh, Israel, which has engaged in enormous archaeological work uh, in its land, uh, has not done any archaeological work around the Temple Mount. Uh, that it is such a politically fraught area. Uh, you know, the, the status, the political status of the Temple Mount technically is under Israeli control. 
Yeah. Uh, but it is a part of East Jerusalem, which, according to international law, had previously been under Jordanian occupation. They also, according to the international law, did not have a right to be there. Um, and so it's under Israeli control or on Israeli military occupation technically, but the Israeli authorities have turned it over to the Jordanians since basically the beginning, and they are in charge of the day-to-day operations of it. Uh, and so, uh, you know, in the past when Israel's looked at doing some archaeological work at the temple site, you know, there are all sorts of accusations that really what's happening is Israel's coming in and trying to uh, destroy the Dome of the Rock. Uh, and pieces like that. And the flip side yeah. is, uh, from the Palestinian perspective, Palestinian mythical perspective, uh, there is no, oftentimes it's presented that Israel actually has no, or the Jewish people have no actual claim to this area, that there never was a temple there. And so there's all sorts of hesitations from their side about allowing any excavation. So anyways, all this is to say that we don't know a lot about the operations uh, because unlike many of the sort of other altar sites uh, that we found in the land of Israel, we haven't done any archaeological work there. So it says if altar guild records were put in a box and then put in a place that was contested by three different religions, and to get at those records, a lot of blood would have to be shed. Or we'd all have to get along a little better than we do. Right, right. Well, Jared, I think that's the answer to your question. We will never know about, well, we might someday, but at the moment, political um, considerations make it impossible for us to know about spider infestations. I love the question. Uh, You you know, the other piece, though, that I think we have to talk about here, and and I sort of mentioned it as an assumption here, uh, is that the, the descriptions that we have of the altar, the operations of the altar, are really descriptions of the way that the second temple worked. Right. Um, it's being framed as the traveling Mishkan, but this is a text itself that's being edited and redacted and compiled by those uh, priests who are living in the uh, time of the Second Temple, post-Babylonian exile. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so Daniel, any final thoughts on this on this book before we You end? know, the piece we didn't talk about was the impact of interfaith chavruta. Uh and this was really powerful yeah. for me to sort of see the ways that it feels often like we're starting from separate positions coming to the same conclusion and really sort of tracing backwards and seeing that uh, the places that we thought were so different maybe weren't so different. Yeah, I think the single most powerful question that you asked during the these 41 weeks was whether we believe in the same God. Like that is the one I keep thinking about over and over again um, and don't have a great answer to. Uh, I mean, I gave an answer off the cuff then, but, uh, uh, you know, because part of me formulating an answer has to be me becoming clear about what God I believe in. And, and the truth is that I think I'm just swimming in mystery all the time. Right. Like it's not uh, to, to paraphrase Richard Rohr, it's not that I can't know God. It's just that every time I learn something about God, there are a hundred other questions which open up. Um, so I don't know with any completeness what God I believe in. So how could I possibly say whether you and I believe in the same God? I have a description. I have a pencil outline of what God looks like, but I do not have a finished painting. 
spoken like an artist. Well, you know, we got to draw our metaphors from somewhere. <laughs> so, okay. Well, we are at the end. Um, so we are, we are planning, we are hoping to uh, continue this study with Luke and Axe. For the Diocese of Southern Ohio, uh, we will not actually start reading Luke and Axe until the beginning of December, uh, first advent. Um, so, Daniel, you and I should have some conversation off yes. air, I suppose, about uh, how we're going to do a chavuta about that. But listeners, expect this feed to go silent for a while and then to come back, I would say. It's like BBC series television or HBO. But we should series. expect that it's going to take longer than three days to arise again. Is that correct? Uh, yes, much, much longer because, uh, you know, neither you nor I are, are divine. <laughs> as, as far as, as, we, far as, as exactly. I know, you might be. I don't know. Exactly. <laughs> so, yes. Um, do you want to, is there like a Hebrew blessing that you could finish us with? You know, there's a blessing for arriving at this moment. Uh, that I always love. Uh, it's a blessing that says, thank you, Holy One, uh, for bringing us to this moment, for raising us up to appreciate this, and for sustaining us in life that we could see what we see today. That is beautiful. Thank you, my friend. Thank you.